0: Let me invite you to turn with me now to one of the more famous chapters in the Scriptures, a chapter that we looked at in part just a few weeks ago, namely Exodus chapter 20. The book of Exodus in the Old Testament and chapter 20. The first 17 verses of this chapter, as you will know, are quite appropriately famous. The Ten Commandments have been Memorized by God's people perhaps as much as any other portion of Scripture for century upon century, and rightly so. And yet it must also be said that the last nine verses of this chapter are vitally important as well, especially as they reveal God's heart toward his people whom he knows will break the commandments in verses 1 through 17. And on this Communion Sunday, this latter portion of the chapter is well worth our taking a closer look at. And so after the Ten Commandments have been delivered in God's own voice and with thunder and lightning and fire and smoke from the summit of Mount Sinai in verses 1 through 17, listen to verses 18 through 26 and to what happened next. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin." So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. Father, come to us in this ancient text. And show us truths that are still true for us today. Truths that encourage us. Truths that will send us out into our week. Helped and strengthened in you. And hopeful in your son. And we pray in his name. Amen. There was a reason why God spoke to his people at Sinai from the midst of fire and smoke and lightning and thunder rather than in the still small voice, as the King James puts it, with which he sometimes communicates to his people. There was a reason God's voice was terrifying on this occasion. He wanted his people to know that he is deadly serious about the commands that he was giving them on this day and about his own holy character which these commands represent. He wanted, according to verse 20, for the fear of him to remain with them so that they may not sin. God has come, verse 20, in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. God wanted his people to remember that day that he is not to be trifled with, and that coming as they did from his own mouth, these ten laws were commands and not suggestions. God is serious about our obedience and about the reflection that it is of our reverence for his holy name. And at Sinai, the people got that message, didn't they? At least for the time being, they got it. All the people, verse 18, perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. In fact, they were so shaken by what they had seen and heard that they asked Moses, in verse 19, to serve as a kind of mediator between God and men. God's holiness was so real to them that they thought they might die if God continued to speak to them directly like this. After all, our God does dwell, as we saw last week, in unapproachable light. And so we can well understand why the Israelites were afraid that day. And yet, I was just reading this week a book called A Month of Sundays by a lady called Glenda Mathis, and she points out something very interesting about this passage. Namely, that while God does indeed want the fear of him to remain with his people, yet Moses also comes to them in that same verse, verse 20, and commands them not to be afraid. Did you notice that? Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin." God wants His fear to remain with you, but He does not want you to be afraid. And so, Mathis points out, there's clearly a difference between fearing the Lord and being afraid of the Lord. There's a difference between revering God, like a child reveres her father, and trembling at his word, at the possibility of fatherly discipline, all of which we ought to do, according to verse 20b. But there's a difference between that and the terror that is in the heart of a criminal who knows that the death sentence is rightly hanging over his head. And if we are God's children, we don't have to fear God in that latter way. If we are among those whom he has brought, verse 1, out of the house of slavery, we do not have to cower before the Lord in terror. And if we want proof of that fact, we have marvelous evidence of it, not only in Moses' exhortation in verse 20, do not be afraid, but also in the instructions that the Lord gives in verse 24. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. You shall make an altar. Why an altar? Well, so that the people, as we read, might offer up upon it burnt offerings and peace offerings, sheep and oxen And why all these offerings? Well, as a covering for sin, to make atonement for sin, to provide substitutes who would die in the place of the Israelites when they broke all the various commandments that God gave them in verses 1 through 17. There was to be peace between themselves and God. They were to make peace offerings that would appease God's wrath against their sin, and God was the one who told them how to do it. Do you see what's happening here? God gave the Ten Commandments and he expected them to be obeyed. And he gave them in fire and smoke and with thunder and lightning to show that he's serious about obedience. And yet, God knew that the Israelites wouldn't obey. He knew that they would sin over and over again. And he could have just left it like that. I've given them what they need to know pertaining to life and godliness, he could have said. I've given them fair warning in this fire and smoke and thunder and lightning that I'm serious about what I'm commanding them this day. And if they still fall foul of my laws, I'm just going to wipe them out like the Egyptians in the Red Sea. God could have said that. And then the Israelites would indeed have had every reason to be terror-stricken of the God of Sinai but that's not what God actually did, is it? Not at all. God didn't just give them commandments. He also gave them sheep and oxen and an altar on which to offer them up to himself so that the Israelites, falling foul of God's law, might have their sins atoned for. He is the God not only of Sinai, but of sacrifice. Not only of the law, but of the altar. And all of this, of course, is a foretaste of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, of the great sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because the moral character of God is still the same as it ever was. God's moral law is still the same as it ever was. His deadly seriousness about our obedience has not budged an inch. And yet, He's also always been a God of mercy, a God who provides a sacrifice and accepts that sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. Those sheep and oxen of old were only temporary. They were given as a provision, but it wasn't meant to be a forever provision. They could not finally atone for sin, though they did temporarily cover it. They were pointing to something or someone greater, a lamb whose blood would avail to cleanse us forever. And Jesus is that lamb and so before we go any further in this passage and we will go further but before we do i need to point out to you that the commandments in verses 1 through 17 condemn you and they condemn me every last one of us has fallen foul of the things that god commands us to do in verses 1 through 17 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and if you don't believe that of yourself or if you think that the commands aren't as deadly serious as I'm making them out to be, just take a blood-earnest look at the moral law of God as it's embodied in the Ten Commandments here in verses 1 through 17 and ask you, yourself if you've really done with this law what you ought to have done over the course of your life. You haven't. And neither have I. All have sinned, and we've also all done so willingly and flagrantly. God hates sin on top of that. It's not just that we've sinned, it's that God hates sin and has every right to punish, to judge those who commit it. And yet, here we are, not judged yet. Here we are singing beautiful lyrics about the Christ whom the Father has sent to us so that he might lay down his life in our place and for our sins. And so before we go any further, I urge you to flee to this Jesus as your only hope this morning. God wants the fear of him to remain with you. But you do not have to be afraid of Him. You do not have to be terror-stricken in His presence. Even if you've fallen foul of all ten of these laws, you may in fact find in Him the comfort of a father if you will but trust in the sacrifice that He has provided as a remedy to your law-breaking. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The God of Sinai is also the God of sacrifice. The God of the law is also the God of the altar. And therefore, the righteous judge can also be your beloved father, if you will lock arms by faith with his only begotten son. And I urge you to do that this morning. If you've never done it before, I urge you to do it. And for those of you who have, I urge you, To remember again today that your hope of eternity, your hope of forgiveness, your hope of right relationship with God is not in what you do for God in verses 1 through 17, but in what He has done for you, in what is foreshadowed in verses 18 through 26. You shall make an altar of earth for me and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And I want to invest some time now this morning in the latter portion of that verse. Verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. There were certain places where God promised to meet with his people in times of old. And not to meet with them merely as an observer or as an inspector of how well they were doing with his law. But in these places, God would come to them and bless them, he says. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And the question is, where were these places? How did the Israelites know where to go? Where would God come to his people and bless them? Where were these places where he would cause his name to be remembered? Well, coming as this statement does on the heels of the instructions about the altar and the sacrifices, it seems like what God is saying here is that wherever it is that I have you build an altar, whether an altar of earth, verse 24, or an altar of stones, verse 25, or of wood and gold as in the tabernacle, wherever I have you set down my altar and offer sacrifices on it, that is where I'm causing my name to be remembered. And there is the place in which I will come to you and bless you. In other words, what God is saying is that it was by means of the altar and the sacrifices that he would cause his name to be remembered. And that it was in the place of that remembrance, in the place of those altars and sacrifices that he would meet with his people and grant them his blessing. And so wherever it was, on the desert floor or in the hills of the promised land eventually, wherever it was that God instructed his people to set up his altar and to offer on it the blood of atonement, there the Lord would be in their midst for blessing. Now there are obviously provisos that came along with this because the prophets would later explain that the sacrifices and the uh, offerings could be an abomination to God if the people were offering them up flippantly or unrepentantly. In that case, they may have been in the right place, but God's name wasn't being remembered or revered among them, and so this promise did not apply. But wherever God set down His altar, and wherever the people offered right and repentant sacrifice on it, I am in their midst, says the Lord. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And I find this promise of God... All these years later, so reassuring and so heartwarming. For not only did God not leave the people with the promise of blessing only if they were nearly flawless in keeping his commandments, and neither did he leave them with a kind of hazy mystical way of discerning his presence and his blessing he didn't leave them in other words looking inwardly to see if they'd really had a good enough quiet time today or if they'd really been moved by that song like they should have been or if their prayer life was really quite as spiritual as it ought to be and then they could know that God had come to them and then they could know they had his blessing no no God is far more objective than that here. He simply says that when I set up my altar, and when you come and offer the appropriate sacrifices on it with a genuinely repentant heart, you can know that I am standing right there beside you and laying my hand of blessing upon your heads. Now, sometimes the people, when they did these things, surely sensed God's pressing blessing and his presence almost tangibly among them as we sometimes do when our hearts are deeply stirred in worship but God's promise to come and bless did not hinge on any particular experience of the worshiper no he simply said that in every place where I cause my name to be remembered in every place where you offer up these sacrifices of atonement and do it with a heart of repentance I will come to you and bless you That's not to say that emotion and experience are not important. They are important. And where there's genuine faith, our emotions will be touched at various times and in various ways. And if they're not touched, we might begin to wonder if we really have faith. And yet the Israelites were not to search, first of all, for a particular experience, but rather and much more simply for the place where God had promised to meet with his people. And I want to say to you this morning, the same is true for you and the same is true for me. We don't have to go searching hither and yon for just the right ambience or aesthetic or experience. And we don't have to consistently be looking inward to see if we feel like we ought to feel about the Lord. The reality is we don't usually feel like we ought to feel about the Lord. And yet he has promised to come to us and to bless his believing people just the same. And he's also told us exactly where it is that he will meet with us. In Old Testament times, the place of meeting was, verse 24, wherever the Lord told the Israelites to set down his altar and offer his sacrifices. Under the old covenant, that is where God caused his name to be remembered. And that is where he promised to come and bless his people. In the place of the altar and of the sacrifices. But in the new covenant, there is no more altar and there are no more sacrifices because these things were merely the shadows of the great and final sacrifice that God has made for us in Christ. So where does God cause his name to be remembered today? Where does God promise to come and bless his people today? Well, if they were to come, or if God was to come to them in the sacrifices, the answer is that God comes to us in the person of his Son who made the sacrifice. The answer to the question, where does God promise to come and meet with and bless us today, is in not so much a place, but in the person of Jesus. And then in whatever places his people gather in repentance and faith to remember his great name. And I want to say to you this morning that chief among those places is wherever God's people are gathered to do just what we are doing today. Wherever God's people are gathered to remember Him, to remember His Son by the reading of His Word and the singing of His praise and the preaching of His Word and and the prayers of His people and the partaking of the Lord's Supper, this is where God causes His name to be remembered today. Where His people gather like we are this morning, in simple faith and in simple repentance and meet with the person of his Son, Jesus, through the normal means of grace, through the normal avenues of worship and fellowship with our King. That may not always satisfy our cultural itches for something with a little more pizzazz, but it's the truth just the same. If you want to know how to draw near to God or rather where it is that He will draw near to you, the most surefire step that you can take is simply to gather together with other believers on the Lord's day to go in faith to the place where God's name is remembered and here He will come to you and bless you. And of course He'll do that not only in this place on the crest of this pleasant ridge but in every place where he causes his name to be remembered. In every place where the gospel is truly preached and the word is opened and prayer is made in the name of Jesus and people gather together in that name, even if the crowd should be as small as two or three, God will come to his people and he will bless them. It's actually refreshingly simple, isn't it? In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, in every new covenant gathering of my people, where my Word is proclaimed and my son is exalted and my people are in prayer and my praises are sung and my ordinances are practiced and my discipline is enforced. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. That is great reason to make these gatherings a priority, isn't it? To be here every single week, to be here even for prayer meeting, and to keep your godly Sunday habits intact even when you're on vacation. After all, it's not only in this place that God will come to you. There's nothing magical about this particular spot. It's simply that in every place where God causes his name to be remembered, he will come and he will bless his people. So wherever that place is near you, you go there and God will meet with you and God will bless you. These Sunday gatherings are so vital for your soul. And God promises here in verse 24 to come to you and bless you in them. All you have to do is be here in an attitude of repentance and faith. In an attitude, in other words, that knows that you need God's help and that believes that you will find it in His Son. You don't have to know a great deal. You don't have to have a lot of things figured out. You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to come in repentance and faith to the place where God causes His name to be remembered. And He'll meet with you. And He will bless you. And I want to challenge some of you beginning this fall to give this day and this place a priority in your life like they've never had before. Now, none of that is to minimize the importance of meeting personally with the Lord in your inner room, as Jesus instructs in the Sermon on the Mount, nor is it to minimize meeting with God in family worship either. Would that we all did more of both. But I think Terry Johnson, who pastors in Savannah, Georgia, is right when he says that the key to your own and your family's spiritual health is remarkably simple. Though there is considerable hype, to the contrary, it involves no pilgrimages to, to sacred places. It requires no longer weekend retreats, seminars, or special programs. It depends on no special techniques or novel methodologies. You won't have to spend another night out. You won't need to add more meetings to an already frantic schedule. The key is to be found in the regular ordinary weekly worship services of the church it is not a glamorous key he says but it is the key nonetheless and it is key i would go on to say and i think johnson would wholeheartedly agree the worship of the local church is key not as a replacement for those other more private meeting places with god but as the fountainhead that feeds and informs and motivates them And so you've come to the right place this morning. You are in exactly the place in which God is causing his name to be remembered and which he therefore promises to come and bless his new covenant people. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And here he is with us now doing just that. And then let me draw special attention to that word in verse 24, remembered. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Does that word ring a bell with you this morning? Does it tie up in your mind to those words that are etched into the front of the communion table just in front of me here? About one specific way that God causes His name and the name of His Son to be remembered? Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Do what? Well, do this Lord's Supper in remembrance of me. Eat this bread in remembrance of me. Drink this cup in remembrance of me. Consider how my body was broken like the wafers in your hand and remember me when you eat that bread. And recall how my blood was poured out in the color of this cup and do this in remembrance of me. And so here... At this communion table, which is spread before us today, is one of those places in which God causes His name to be remembered among us. It's not a reoffering of the sacrifice, as some believe, but it is a remembrance of it. A remembering of God in Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we do so in a few moments, the Lord says to us, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. What does that mean specifically in regard to the Lord's Supper today? Well, it doesn't mean if you eat the bread and drink the cup that God will necessarily make your life go more smoothly or that He'll put a few more spiritual points in your column this week. The blessing that God is talking about is not a blessing that God gives you for taking the Lord's Supper, but a host of blessings that God gives you in the Lord's Supper. It's not a tit-for-tat. The supper itself comes with the blessings. And so how does God come to us and bless us today as we take up the bread and the cup from his table? Well, one way is simply that we're reminded this morning where our hope really lies. Where our hope really lies. Only those who know that they're trusting in Christ and whose life is in keeping with that claim should partake of the Lord's Supper, and I remind you of that once again before we take. But the very nature of the Supper is that it reminds us that while our lives should demonstrate that we have a hope of salvation, our lives are not the basis of that hope. That's what the Lord's Supper teaches us, isn't it? The bread of the Lord's Supper is not in the form of little star-shaped crackers that remind us of all the merit badges we think we've earned with God. It's in the shape of broken, crackled, rough little shards that remind us of how Christ's body was torn open to pay for our sins. And the wine or the grape juice is not given to us as a toast of our spiritual successes, but as a reminder of the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And so God comes to us in the Lord's Supper and he blesses us in that the bread and the cup remind us where our hope of salvation really is. And there is great hope spread on this table before us this day because I can read back through the Ten Commandments and become very disappointed in myself and very aware of the judgment that I deserve at God's hands and I should read them in that way from time to time. But God hasn't only just given me the commandments. He's also given me the sacrifice and the altar, the Savior and His cross, in other words. And today, He's given me the bread and the cup to remind me of these things, to help me remember. And so while I may have dragged myself here this morning, knowing how I failed the Lord again this week, I don't have to walk out of here today in the same sense of drudgery. Because if I approach His table in repentance and in faith, God will come to me there, verse 24, and God will bless me there with the blessing of renewed hope in the grace that is in Christ. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, including and sometimes especially at the Lord's table, I will come to you and bless you. And then God comes to us in the Lord's Supper and blesses us in the Lord's Supper in that the Supper, when taken in faith, breathes into our souls not only hope, but also the wonderful grace of humility. Humility. First of all, because as we said, the Supper reminds us that our hope is not in ourselves. It's in Jesus. And also humility, because when we break the bread in our hands and the crumbs tumble down onto our laps and onto the floor, we're forced to remember that this is what the sins of my life did to the body of Jesus. And that's humbling. And when we gaze into the crimson of the cup, we are reminded that this is what our sins did to Jesus. Drained Him from His very veins. And we realize that sin is horrific, and that we are its perpetrators, and we are humbled. And then we look around the room, too, and we see all these other people eating the very same bread and drinking from the same sort of cup. And some of them are more spiritually mature than us, and some of them are less so. But the commonality of the bread and the cup reminds us that we're all on equal footing at the cross. No one is better than another at the foot of the cross of Jesus, and that is humbling, too, if we're tempted to be proud. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you with the hope of the gospel and with the humility of the gospel and then also with the communion that the gospel affords. There's a reason why the Lord's Supper is often called communion. Because it is, first of all, a way of communing with, of drawing near to God in the ways that we've already mentioned, in hope and in humility. And also the supper enables us to draw near to God, to communion with Him, in that its very tangible nature, its touch and feel and taste nature, reminds us of how closely God has drawn near to us. The physicality of the bread and the cup are reminders that Christ became physical too, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And there are not many truths that ought to endear us to God more than that. He became one of us entered into all our frailties, yet without sin. He ate and he drank and he walked and he slept and he did everything else that we humans do except for sin, even to the point of bleeding and dying among us and as one of us and for us. And so the supper reminds us that we have communion with God, primarily because of the reconciliation of the cross, but also because of the truth of the incarnation, that this God came to be with us, one of us, for us. And so we hold the bread in our hand this morning, and we grip the cup between our thumb and Four finger. And we know that Jesus is not physically present in either of these elements, but the very tangibility of their nature reminds us that He was physically present and that He did come and walk among us and that He did die for us and that He wants to have fellowship with us even now and that He is coming in the flesh again someday soon. And so we draw near to Jesus as we hold the tangible bread and cup in our hands. And even more so as we place them in our mouths and we find ourselves thanking Jesus and feeling loved by Jesus and renewing our hope in Jesus. And in all these ways, he comes and sits right here with us, just as verse 24 says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you. And not only is the Lord's Supper a reminder of our communion with God, In Christ, but also of our communion with one another. That's why the Bible teaches that we eat the bread and drink the cup as a church and not simply on our own. This shared meal reminds us that we are a family. And that realization is a blessing from God and is in itself part of the spiritual nourishment that is afforded to us in the Lord's Supper. And there is a sense, not a magical or mystical sense, not an automatic or saving sense, but there is a sense in which we nourish our souls by means of the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. Maybe it's more accurate to say that the bread and the cup are God's means for helping us nourish our souls on Jesus and on his gospel. And so when we gather with this gospel feast spread before us, God comes to us and blesses us and feeds our faith with hope and humility and communion both with himself and one another. And here is the blessing promised in Exodus twenty twenty four. So much of it to be found when we come to the Lord's table and remember Christ's name in the Lord's Supper. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And you know, even if you find yourself this morning among those who should not partake of the supper, those who should let the plates pass you by, even if you are here and your life demonstrates that you don't yet know the Lord or your head just tells you that you can't yet wrap your mind around this Jesus, if you will simply watch intently today and really think about what the bread and the cup picture, God will draw near to you and bless you even in that if you will think about the broken body of Jesus symbolized in the broken bread and the hands of the people all around you and if you will think about the blood that he shed for our sins pictured in the cup of the Lord's Supper God will bless you with the best visual aid with the best word picture with the best pictorial sermon that anyone could ever have think this morning about how brutally Jesus suffered to save a wretch like me and like you and you will realize that God has come to you and blessed you with a vivid reminder that you must take Jesus for your own. And whoever you are today, believer or unbeliever, strong Christian or weak, realize what a privilege it is that we are gathered today to either partake in or at least to observe this supper in remembrance of Jesus. The Lord is causing His name to be remembered among us today. And so you've come to exactly the right place. Indeed, there's no better place on earth that you could be at this very moment than just where you're sitting. Because as we remember Jesus now, we have God's promise in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you.